I'm Emmeline Posner. For the last nine months, I reported on the sale of the Tudor Gables, a historic housing cooperative in Kenwood. It seemed as though the building was on the path to recovery. The board had settled a court case and wrapped up a much-needed $3.4 million rehab project. But then, in 2021, the building sold off-market to a rental company. What happened? For nine months, I interviewed experts and former members of the building, trying to understand what happened to the building and what it meant in the context of Chicago's housing crisis. This is the second of three stories looking at the botched rehab of the Gables and members' years-long fight against what they called board mismanagement. The story was reported and written by me and read by Chima Ikoro. What happened to the Tudor Gables? Part two, the multi-million dollar corporation. Shareholders gathered on the front lawn of Kenwood's Tudor Gables Housing Cooperative in September 2021 to consider selling the building. They had just emerged from a renovation that took several years and cost millions of dollars. The renovation was supposed to get the historic cooperative's building back into shape. The building's roof had started to fail in the mid-2000s, and members were living with leaks and the kinds of damages caused by continuous streams of water, electrical outages, mold, and ceiling collapses. In 2014, a new board of directors promised to get the building back on track. But soon after the rehab was completed, the board insisted that it had no option but to sell. They said they needed to accept a developer's off-market $11.5 million offer. At the meeting, co-op members reluctantly voted to sell. Kublai Torre had been a Tudor Gables co-op member for 50 years. It was made clear that we didn't have no choice, said Torre. The president of the building's last board, before it was sold, was LaShawn Gray-Riley. He blamed the shareholders for the sale of the building. Gray-Riley wrote an email to co-op members a month after the building sale went through. In it, he said, the tragedy of Tudor Gables is that we had in our possession a beautiful building and could not maintain the cost to hold on to it. It was lost due to shareholders not paying due assessments and without this income each month, it is impossible to pay our bills and mortgage. Members questioned this narrative. The Weekly and the Herald conducted around two dozen interviews with former members and reviewed the Tudor Gables loan documents for this investigation. We found that during the building's multi-year rehab project, consecutive boards broke their fiduciary duty to co-op members. The boards operated without transparency and allowed conflicts of interest and interpersonal disputes to derail the rehab. Two board members convinced the cooperative to pay them $105,000 to oversee construction management. These board members brought in a general contractor who did poor quality work that needed to be replaced. At one point, he even allowed teenagers to participate in basic construction work. 
By the end of the rehab, one board member had filed two lawsuits against the building. Other board members were accusing each other of fraud and mismanagement. In the end, some shareholders had to wait years for a habitable unit. One co-op member was never able to move back in. Shareholder William House called the board's reasoning for the sale a total manipulation. He alleges that the board mismanaged the rehab and the sale, leaving senior citizens like him, who lived on fixed incomes, struggling with housing instability after the building sold. In November 2002, the board said that the last of the funds from the sale had been paid out to members and to outstanding bills. With the last of the money, the cooperative is gone. But House and other members still have questions about what transpired during the years of rehabilitation and the board's role in the sale. Who was responsible for the bungling of the rehab? Was selling the building really their only option? How are members to trust that what the board says is true? And what will become of the building that the Tudor Gables Cooperative used to call home? To House, only one thing is certain. They stole a lot of money, and nobody seems to know, House alleges. They need to be accountable. No one disputes that shareholders had stopped paying assessments in the previous two decades. House was one of them. House came to the Tudor Gables in 1980. His father's brother passed away and left his apartment and cooperative shares to his next of kin. His father had a home already, so House took the unit. The 18-year-old moved in and stayed, later falling in love with and marrying another member of the cooperative. When the roof started to fail in the mid-2000s, House was one of several third-floor residents who got hit bad. Water got everywhere, dripping in through the ceiling and the walls with every rainfall and snow melt. House and other members said that the board would only hire for patch jobs. House had to put up buckets and tarps. There was no use repainting or rewiring. As soon as the latest patch job failed, the plaster would be bubbling up just like before. Frustrated with the board's inadequate response, House started calling 311 on the building. City inspectors added to the Gables' growing list of violations, but that didn't seem to spur the board to action. So House started withholding his monthly assessments of $370. There was some precedent for not paying assessments, the monthly fee that cooperative members pay towards building maintenance, property taxes, and other bills. But it wasn't always because of water damage. Back in the 1990s, House and other members alleged the board started to give a pass on assessments to some members. People that they was friends with, House said. They would tell people not to worry about missing assessments. Kublai Torre is now a retired fireman and community activist. He had lived in the building since 1972. He said around the 1990s, the board became less transparent with documents. A lot of people felt that communication was breaking down, he said. There was a great concern about that because there were certain board activities that we didn't have full knowledge of. Touré said he spoke up about his concerns surrounding transparency and building upkeep for years, but eventually backed away from the board affairs because of the distress it brought. House said he didn't want to piggyback on others' opportunism, but when other methods of intervention failed, 
withholding his assessments appeared to be the only way to signal to the board that their neglect was violating his rights as a member of a cooperative. It was his way of saying, you all had an obligation and you didn't fulfill your obligations in a way that they might hear it. He withheld his assessments, waiting on the board to fix the roof. Instead, the board left him an eviction notice. Cooperative members are in a peculiar situation. They have an autonomy and ability to build equity that renters do not have. Monthly assessments go toward building upkeep and improvements, utilities and bills, and any remainder might be redistributed back to them rather than to the landlord's pockets. If the building is run well, the building's value might increase, increasing the value of each member's shares. But they don't own their units like condominium association members do. Instead, they're shareholders of a nonprofit corporation. The corporation owns the building and leases units out to its members. A cooperative member's proprietary lease is not all that different from a renter's lease. It holds members to paying their assessments and it holds the cooperative to maintaining the building's common elements like wiring, plumbing, walls, and roof. If damages to the common elements affect members' apartments, the proprietary lease places the responsibility for repairs on the cooperative. Otherwise, repairs fall on the member. But in the eyes of the law, the existence of a lease means that there is still a landlord-tenant relationship between members and their elected board. If a member breaks the terms of the lease, the board can file for eviction. If a landlord fails to make necessary repairs in a rental building, a renter can legally withhold their rent until repairs are made if they provided adequate notice. If that landlord moves to evict the tenant for not paying their rent, it's considered retaliatory. If that happens, tenants can fight back in court. That's a protection extended to renters by the city's Residential Landlord-Tenant Ordinance, RLTO. But the ordinance's protections don't extend to cooperative members for the obvious reasons that cooperative members are owners, not renters. Without RLTO protections, co-op members technically don't have the right to withhold payment over necessary repairs. According to Michael Kim, a Chicago area attorney who specializes in condominium and homeowner association law, outcomes for cooperative members in eviction court vary situation by situation and judge by judge. Kim said that withholding assessments over an uninhabitable unit is usually not a good defense in eviction court. But Kim acknowledged there's some gray area. Sometimes it depends on how the judge views it and how the argument is presented. House found some luck in that gray area. His first eviction case in 2008 was dismissed when the board's longtime lawyer didn't show up. When the board brought him back to eviction court in 2011, the judge agreed that House could use the board's breach of the implied warranty of habitability as a defense. In the end, House settled with the board. He was allowed to keep his membership and his apartment on the condition that he pay $2,500. This was a significant reduction from the nearly $9,000 he had withheld from the building over the past five years. House had also agreed to accept the unit in its current condition. It wasn't a total victory. House was still living in a damaged unit under an unresponsive board. But others who made the same defense in court came out far worse. Another longtime member, 
who had been withholding her payments due to water damage, landed in court with a less sympathetic judge. He told her that the damages didn't justify withholding assessments. She appealed the eviction order, but it was upheld. The judge told her that the only way to fight the damages was to file a separate lawsuit against the corporation. She chose not to. I just want it to be over, she said in resignation. Cassandra Dixon was a lifelong member who was acting as a volunteer building grounds manager at the time. She remembers being directed to change the locks on the evicted members unit after the eviction order was upheld. This is someone who had been there a good 10 years, you know? She considered this her home, Dixon said. The Tudor Gables board filed 159 eviction cases between 2000 and 2020. 87 resulted in eviction orders. The rest were either settled or dismissed, except for four cases whose outcome couldn't be determined from court records. The Herald and the Weekly were not able to determine how many of the filings were tied to water damages. I asked cooperative lawyer Randall Pentiuk about the rate of eviction filings at the Tudor Gables. I wondered how it compared to that of other cooperatives. Pentiuk called the numbers alarming and indicative of a deeper problem. Pentiuk is based in Detroit, but represents cooperatives throughout Chicago. He said that many of his cooperative clients have no record of evictions. Rogue or negligent boards aren't uncommon, though. Pentiuk said he'd recommend that members organize themselves and push for a resolution to force the board to action. And if that doesn't work, he says members should force a special election to reboot the board. In Michigan, cooperative members can petition the circuit court to remove a director who's broken their fiduciary duty, though this is a new and somewhat unusual process, he said. If all of that failed, then legal mediation or litigation would be the only way forward. A handful of members filed lawsuits against the board in the 2000s. One said she filed a lawsuit because the board allegedly refused to provide her with copies of her shareholder's certificate. The lawsuit didn't go anywhere. Some of the building's janitors filed personal injury claims or fair wages cases against the cooperative. But the Herald and the Weekly could only identify one case, which was filed in 2019, that sought damages for the board's failure to keep its members' units safe and livable. In the court system, that's a breach of the warranty of habitability. It was filed by a board member. I got the sense from interviewing former members that filing a lawsuit would have been too extreme. Even calling 311 on the building felt like an act of betrayal because in the end, the repercussions would be felt by members, not just the board. We're calling the city on each other. We're calling the city on our home, Dixon said. Two things is going to happen. We're going to get violations. We're going to get fined. The assessments is going to go up. And then there was a practical part. Filing a lawsuit is time-consuming and expensive. And filing a lawsuit against your own cooperative Legal fees on both sides would eat out of the building's funds, funds that could be going towards building repairs. The board didn't seem to have the same reservations. They kept burning off excess money, going to court, going to court, House said. In 2010, members had had enough. They voted to conduct an audit of the building's books from the last several years. An accountant came on to look at the building's books. But the board wouldn't cooperate or provide supporting documentation, 
so the auditor was unable to verify a majority of the building's cash flow. Dixon remembered the meeting with the auditor well. He pretty much told us, you guys need to pay more attention to what's going on with your money. Because a lot of money he was looking for, there was no accountability for it, Dixon said. The same year, the board finally hired a contractor to replace the entire roof, but he disappeared after replacing three of the building's 20 roof sections, leaving the majority of the roof stripped. The management company covered the unfinished roofs in blue tarp. The city filed a lawsuit against the building. During a snowmelt in January 2014, the ceiling collapsed on co-op resident William House and his wife while they were sleeping. He called the Channel 5 news station and began withholding his assessments once again. As soon as she was elected co-op board president in March 2014, Fran Froelich jump-started building repairs. There wasn't enough money in the building funds to tackle it all at once, though, so she started with electrical work and the replacement of the roof above House's unit. It's the one she singled out as the worst to city officials persecuting the building. In October of that year, Froelich wrote an email to city officials. Just wanted to let you both know that we are still moving in the right direction. They had signed contracts with a mason and a roofer, and they were awaiting approval of the building permit. The city was eager to see building work moving along. According to records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, a city lawyer emailed a department building's commissioner about the Tudor Gables renovations. The lawyer wrote, The roof is really bad. Can we expedite the permit? In the next few months, the building completed the roof over House's unit and fixed lights throughout the building. About a year later, by October 2015, Froelich had secured a $1.4 million loan. She was promising members that the remainder of the roof would be replaced and watertight before the first snow. Then they get to work on rehabbing the most water-damaged units. Loan draw documents show work continuing mostly on schedule. By December, all but two of the roofs were complete. Masonry work was underway across the building, and the board had gut rehabbed 20 units. They planned for these units to provide temporary housing for existing owners while their units can be restored. Though she had lived in the building since 2004, no one knew much about Froelich. She was an older woman, one of the first white members to move into the historically Black cooperative. She resided in one of the most spacious of the Gables apartments, a five-room apartment on the third floor that overlooked the boulevard. Within a couple years of moving, Froelich started writing long, winding emails to the board. In those emails, she documented the leaks and mold in her apartment and criticized the board's tendency to hire contractors who are not licensed or bonded. Froelich warned the board to do it right with repair work. She wrote on behalf of other members, often with a tone of righteousness. In 2010, after the city filed its lawsuit against Tudor Gables, Froelich emailed the board. She wrote, The building is almost in a state of deterioration where it is becoming unhealthy to live here, particularly those of us on the third floor. Sometimes, Froelich's tone dipped towards disdain. It is the board's choice whether or not six months to a year from now I get to say, I told you so, she signed off in one email. She kept tabs on every administrative hearing and circuit court case. 
She encouraged members to read court documents and seemed to know the right course of action at every juncture. As they applied for the first loan, Froelich navigated legal and financial requirements with ease, coordinating with city officials to make sure the city's lawsuit didn't get in the way of the loan approval. Many saw Froelich as a board president who was doing what needed to be done for once. Perhaps her tenure would bring an end to the secrecy and mismanagement. We thought this was a good idea when Fern came in, said Jennifer White, who moved into the building in 2013 after her grandmother, a longtime member, passed away. White said of Fran, she knew the right lawyers to get when people were getting evicted illegally. She seemed like the voice of the people. Other co-op members remained wary of Froelich. No one knew where Froelich's real estate knowledge came from. Members said she disclosed little about herself and her professional background. According to property records, Froelich herself and as a partner in a holding company, purchased and resold over two dozen distressed properties across the South Side in the late 1990s. Dixon felt that Froelich held some responsibility for some of the evictions that locked members out of their homes. She and others alleged Froelich assured members that they were within their rights not to pay their assessments if they had water damages, even though, in many cases, members who didn't pay their assessments wound up in eviction court. Dixon told me, this person's whole thing, their whole agenda, was to come there to get the building divided and to become president of the board and have control to oversee the money. But House thought some of the animosity towards Froelich was born of members who resented having lost control of the board. House said that if it wasn't for her, the building would have never came out of building court and it would have been condemned. She was voted in and she changed things up and they didn't like it. Froelich declined to speak on the record, explaining that a legal settlement prevented her from speaking about the building. She did not respond to additional requests for comment. When Froelich did a walkthrough of the building in March 2016, the city inspector and site manager were pleased. The roof replacement and rehabbing of the 35 units was nearing completion, just in time for the building's building court date. They expected that the work will resolve the building's remaining code violations. Several months later, the city settled the case they had been fighting against the Tudor Gables for nearly six years. With the roof replacement and lawsuit settled, it seemed like some bridges could be mended. Froelich approached Dixon and Means about hosting a building-wide picnic in 2017. They agreed to help. To Dixon, the picnic felt like a turning point. The front lawn had been off-limits for barbecues or recreation for as long as anyone could remember. But that day, longtime shareholders, newcomers, neighbors, and even the building's handful of renters came out in the hot July evening to eat and mingle. A few people grumbled about the upending of building tradition, but for the most part, the picnic felt celebratory. Dixon remembered it was a good time. I'm telling you, we barbecued. We had a good time. Everyone was happy. What made me feel so good was seeing elderly people living in the building, seeing them come out and sit in their little area and they brought their chairs outside, and they were sitting on a two-door gable's lawn. Froelich's board had plugged the biggest hole, but getting back to steady ground would be an even bigger project. Units damaged by water were still unlivable, 
and some members were still displaced from their units. It was 2017, three years after the house's ceiling had fallen in. The roof above his unit had been replaced, but the unit itself was still in disrepair, and there was no clear timeline for rehab. Instead, he eventually accepted temporary residence in the unit underneath his apartment, which he said was rat-infested. House said that the board basically said, accept it or don't accept it. I kind of had to do the best I can with clearing up the rodents and doing what I needed to do to make it livable for me. House wasn't the only one waiting. Pia Johnson had moved out in late 2015 after her own ceiling fell in. When it became clear to her that repairs were not imminent, she decided to be realistic and signed a lease on an apartment on the north side. Both House and Johnson stopped paying their assessments after their ceiling fell in. This was the first time Johnson had done so. I was always up to date with my assessments, Johnson said, even as water leaked into her apartment over the years and damaged her art and furniture. I always paid because I knew there were so many people that wasn't. But to afford a temporary apartment, something had to give. The board would need more money to fix up these and other units, and it also desperately needed to pay off their first loan. The $1.4 million loan had a 12% interest rate and a one-year loan term that the board had already extended. Dixon remembered that they were struggling to make mortgage payments on time. Co-op members were nervous about the possibility of foreclosure. So, at the end of 2017, Froelich's board put in an application for a loan from the Chicago Community Loan Fund, asking for $3.4 million. From any angle, the loan would be significant. It was far and above the fund's average loan for that year, which was a little over 624000 The only group that will receive more money in 2018 was the Timeline Theater, which received $3.6 million to acquire and rehab a new building in Uptown. CCLF President Calvin Holmes said that the fund doesn't ordinarily give loans to market-rate cooperatives like the Gables. Instead, they focus on limited equity cooperatives, which are designed to preserve affordable housing. Those kinds of cooperatives often receive federal housing subsidies and have strict rules about how much membership shares can be sold for. But Holmes said that they consider lending to market-rate cooperatives if anti-displacement is at play or if it's naturally occurring affordable housing. Both apply to the Gables. The building had always been home to a good number of older, retired people, people who lived on fixed incomes and needed the affordability and close-knit community that the Gables offered. And even though House's monthly assessment nearly doubled in the last 10 years, the building remained more affordable than most market-rate rentals in the area. Just as the board was getting ready to close on the loan in March 2018, the newly elected board treasurer sent out an email questioning a payment of $34,000 to Angelo Rose. Rose was a planner who the board had hired to help with the loan application. Shareholders had only agreed to pay Rose $3,000 for initial consulting work. At a tense board meeting that month, Froelich scrambled to explain the snafu to shareholders. Was the $34,000 a broker's fee for Rose's work on the loan application, or was it an initial fee for a construction management contract that Rose prepared? Froelich wasn't sure. Regardless, Froelich said she paid it out swiftly 
because he had threatened to file a lien. A contractor can file a lien on a property when they don't receive payment for an invoice. A lien clouds a building's title, and many lenders will not lend until the lien has been resolved, either by paying the lien holder or by fighting it in court. The Herald and the Weekly was unable to confirm the existence of a lien via the recorder of deeds. Rose declined to speak on the record and did not respond to additional requests for comment. At the board meeting, Froelich said that the board realized it had no possibility of hiring Rose because they discovered that he did not have an LLC in good standing. CCLF spokesperson Juan Calixto confirmed that this is a requirement for a project manager under a loan issued by the fund. So they'd replace Rose with a board member, Nuri Medina, and Froelich herself. The meeting erupted into protest. Medina, an older Black man, bought into the building in 2014, the same year that Froelich became board president. By 2015, he was a board member. Medina's two sons bought into the building soon after. According to Dixon, Medina had been trying to buy into the building for several years before then. Dixon said that she was directed by the previous president to not show him any of the units anymore because they felt like he was only coming in for profit. Renting in the cooperative was a fraught topic. Cooperatives are supposed to be owner-occupied, which meant restricting subletting. But over the years, subletting had become common. Some shareholders moved out of state and rented their units out to hang on to them. Others inherited units from family members but didn't want to move in themselves, so they found renters. Dixon felt it crossed a line to be coming into the cooperative with the intention of renting. Shareholders had other reasons to distrust or at least be skeptical of Medina. Dixon said she learned Medina had been barred from practicing law following an investigation in the late 1990s. Medina did have a company called WorkReady Inc. and thus could qualify as a project manager for the renovations. But his company described itself online as a temporary employment agency serving the hospitality industry, not necessarily the best fit for a complex rehab on a building with more than 100 units. According to a report uploaded online by Medina, he had taken part in three construction management jobs in the previous two decades. One was doing facade repairs on two businesses' storefronts in North Lawndale. Another was developing several single-family homes in Garfield Park. And the third job was the rehab of two 24-unit affordable residential buildings in suburban Maywood. None of the Medinas responded to multiple requests for comment by email or phone. Dixon wasn't convinced that Medina and Froelich taking over the rehab contract would move the building forward. Despite the progress of the roof, Froelich's board hadn't been sharing financial documents. And now, there was evidence it had been making payments without shareholder approval, Dixon said. You all right now still can't tell us what we spent the last money on. So what's the difference going to be when you all start getting paid? What more are you all going to show us if you're not showing us now? Other shareholders at the March meeting expressed concern and asked why they couldn't seek out a different project manager. Froelich stressed that there was no time to find a new project manager and that the price was right. Medina's proposed contract was around 70000 less than the total that Rose had proposed. 
members were faced with the worry that without a project manager, they might lose the loan. They had no immediate alternatives, so they eventually agreed to approve the contract. On April 9th, the board signed a contract with Medina's WorkReady, Inc. Ten days later, CCLF signed off on the loan. The next day, the board paid off its first loan. Froelich stepped down as president, and board members elected a new president named Dolores Garman. She had been a member of the board of directors. The second round of rehab started shortly after. The loan was supposed to fund the rehab and get the cooperative back to financial health. The building would fix up members' units so displaced members like House could return to their apartments. In addition to that, Tour Gables would be able to sell vacant units. The hope was that by bringing more people into the building and collecting more assessments, the Gables could find its financial footing. But problems with the rehab emerged early on. According to Froelich, the building's general contractor fell months behind on work and brought in plumbing subcontractors who did dangerously subpar work. Broken pipes were patched with insulation and cement. There was improper soldering. In October 2018, Medina and Froelich wrote a letter to the general contractor, OLN Construction Services. In the letter, they said the work OLN was doing would have created a leaking and flooding disaster. Froelich and Medina used OLN's subpar work to justify their decision to bring in their own contractors to take over the rehab. Like Medina's company, there was little trace of OLN's previous work history. The two building permits issued to OLN were for comparatively minor work. According to Froelich, OLN was hired at the recommendation of Angelo Rose. He had said that OLN had done construction work for the prestigious Trinity United Church of Christ, where the Obamas attended. The Herald and the Weekly could not locate records of that work, and neither OLN nor Trinity United Church of Christ responded to requests for comment. Dixon also recalled that Medina brought in teenagers to do landscaping and some basic construction work in the building during the construction period between 2018 and 2019. In invoices submitted to the loan company, Medina refers to a youth employment development program specific to the building rehab. A report uploaded by Medina in June 2019 includes pictures of teens on the building premises. One picture shows four teens standing in the empty fountain bed around a flower planter. Another shows several teens wearing masks, pulling down drywall in what appears to be the basement, where there was a record of asbestos. Shareholders said they weren't consulted about teen participation and thought that it was wrong. Gladys Means said that Medina wouldn't hear their concerns. She also alleged that he told concerned shareholders that if anything happened to the kids, the liability would fall on the building, not his company WorkReady. When asked for comment about WorkReady's Youth Employment Development Program, CCLF spokesperson Juan Calixto wrote, Unfortunately, we cannot provide information about specific loans or borrowers. At the start of the project, House and Johnson saw that their units were listed in the plans for rehab. But by April 2019, a year had come and gone since the building had first secured the loan. But according to documents the building provided to CCLF, House's unit was just halfway done, 
and Johnson's unit hadn't been started at all. Only 12 units had been completed. The lack of transparency was confounding to shareholders. Dixon said, We go through these rehabs. You know, we have the units. But when they rehab the units, we were like, how many units did you rehab? They can never give us a definite amount of how many units that was vacant to what they rehabbed. In some cases, it wasn't even clear who lived in the apartments that were slated for rehab or if they were vacant. Many units had been returned to the cooperative via eviction order or a legal fight to reclaim the apartment from a delinquent or absentee owner. The documents submitted to CCLF were contradictory and inconsistent. In some documents, apartments were identified as shareholder-owned, to be sold, or rented. But it was not specified whether the unit was being rented out by the board or by a shareholder in absentia. An individual unit was listed twice or three times in a list of units under construction. In another case, a rehab unit was identified as Unit 4W, but the building only has three floors. While House and Johnson waited, rehab work had started happening in units that weren't designated for construction. Like Dixon's new upstairs neighbor, they were doing a full gut rehab of her unit, tearing out walls and replacing pipes. In the fall of 2018, the board approached Dixon and their plumber about replacing a degraded pipe that ran through her apartment's bathroom. She agreed, thinking it was a good sign. The work was supposed to take one day, but soon the scope of the work snowballed. Before she could say, yes, the board and the plumber had decided to fully gut her bathroom. They tore out not just the walls and fixtures, but the tile floor as well. Dixon suspected it was to facilitate the upstairs rehab work, and she was upset that it had happened without her approval. By the end of the year, she had new pipes, but the rest of the bathroom was never put back together. Then, when the polar vortex of late January 2019 hit, the new pipes, which were uninsulated and exposed to the cold, first. Dixon's bathroom would be repiped that year, but for the rest of her time in the building, she'd make it through without a functioning sink or bathtub. In addition to financing the rehab, the loan from CCLF was supposed to help the Gables shore up its finances. The loan was structured so that the cooperative wouldn't have to make payments on the loan until they had finished their construction work or until April 1st, 2020, whichever came first. The expectation was that the building would focus on rehousing members, increasing assessment payments, and selling some of its vacant units. The hope was that all this would get money flowing back into the building before they were on the hook for mortgage payments. The situation with assessments was so dire that the building had hired a debt collector to work with members who had unpaid assessments before the loan. But one year into the loan, assessment payment did not seem to have improved substantially. Before LaShawn Gray Riley became president, he was the board treasurer. In April 2019, Shortly before he was elected president, Gray Riley circulated a document that showed that the amount of money lost due to shareholders not paying their assessments had ballooned under Froelich's presidency. The total amount was around $144,000. One single shareholder allegedly owed 
$37,000 to the building. In the document, Gray Riley claimed that Froelich had not only permitted shareholders to rack up debt, but broke the building's bylaws. Some of the things he accused Froelich of doing were moving evicted tenants into other apartments, pre-warning shareholders of eviction filings and service of court papers, and arbitrarily withholding stock certificates from shareholders. The building's eviction records showed that some people received eviction orders in multiple consecutive cases, suggesting that eviction orders were not always enforced or that some members were allowed back into their units. I want to make it clear that I am not against Fran, Gray Riley wrote in his email. She was very helpful when I first moved into the building. Like most of you, I felt she was a nice person and appreciated her for taking care of our building. However, I began to see real problems once I became part of the board. Gray Riley warned that with this level of assessment debt, the building would hover on the brink of foreclosure and utility shutoffs. Gray Riley continued in his document, Tudor Gables relies on regular monthly payments. If we fall short, every one of us will be in trouble. Missing just one monthly mortgage payment can result in the bank foreclosing on us. You need to know they will not foreclose on just the people who are not paying, but on the entire building. We will all lose our homes. Gray Riley declined to speak on the record and did not respond to additional requests for comment. The board was supposed to be shoring up the building's finances by selling the units it was rehabbing. But there was little evidence that that was happening. Shareholders, interviewed by the Herald and the Weekly, said they only knew about new members because they saw them coming in and out of the building or heard the work being done in their apartment, like with Dixon's upstairs neighbor. But there's no mention of Dixon's new upstairs neighbor in loan documents. There's no mention of any new members, with one exception. In July 2019, months after Gray Riley was elected president of the board, two of his relatives bought gutted-out studio units. They were cheap. They paid a total of $3,500, plus the cost of rehab, which they were supposed to fund themselves out of pocket. Medina and Froelich reported this to the CCLF in one of their documents. In it, they acknowledged the relation between the buyers and Gray Riley, but it's unclear if these were the only purchase agreements or if they were the only ones Medina and Froelich chose to include in the loan documents. Jennifer White felt that Gray Riley was taking advantage of his power as president to buy up units for relatives. White started working with him to buy a unit for her mother-in-law, who needed a place. White said, we're in heavy talks about the unit for three or four weeks. Around the end of summer, getting ready to make a down payment. Out of the blue, even before the building was getting sold off, it was no longer available. White said no further explanation was provided to her. It was just no longer available. More than one shareholder said board members were snagging units for family and friends, though the Herald and the Weekly were unable to confirm these claims. Dixon alleged that her new upstairs neighbor was a girlfriend of one of Medina's sons. When her kitchen light fixture fell down due to the apartment's work upstairs, she said that she had found Nuri Medina Jr. upstairs working on the apartment. He came down to help fix her light fixture. Beyond that, 
there was little documentation to verify ownership of the upstairs unit. There had been no work permit issued for it, even though it should have received a separate permit from the city's Department of Buildings because it was not part of the loan-funded work. As the rehab dragged on, internal conflict began bubbling up. Medina filed a lawsuit against the board president, Gray Riley, former President Garman, and another board member. In the lawsuit, Medina claimed that they had deliberately slowed down rehab work in order to retaliate against Medina and delay payments to his company. Medina also claimed that Gray Riley breached his fiduciary duties by clearing the assessment debt of his sister and of Garman's daughter. Medina also sought damages for the building's breach of the warranty of habitability and their failure to provide him with the money to repair the interior of his apartment after the roof above his unit was repaired. But in the text of Medina's complaint, he also acknowledged receiving the sort of treatment that was never provided to other members of the Tudor Gables. For example, Medina complained about water damage in his first apartment. So in 2016, Froelich allowed him to swap his unit out for a larger unit for an additional $10,000. But then he received a remediation credit of a little more than $10,000 for the water damages he'd suffered in his first apartment. No other member interviewed by the Herald and the Weekly had received a credit like the one Medina got. Medina filed a second lawsuit against the building shortly after his first lawsuit. In the second one, Medina was seeking more pay for his project management work. He was asking for an additional $22,500 on the grounds that construction delays had caused him to do more work. Court records show that the building's lawyer argued that there was no factual or legal basis for the claim and that the lien was wrongfully filed. The lawyers for the building pointed out that Medina had filed multiple documents attesting to have being paid in full and that he had even signed a document that waived his rights to file a lien. There was nothing in the contract that offered an extension or a guarantee of extra pay. Then, shortly after the lawsuits, the Tudor Gables board, led by President Gray Riley, claimed that Medina and Froelich were not paying their assessments. Eviction filings against the two from late 2019 showed that Medina owed the building $5,000. Froelich owed $22,000. These were the last eviction filings before the building was sold. The Herald and the Weekly were unable to verify the claim against Medina with Medina, Gray Riley, or the board's lawyer. However, in a January 2020 email to shareholders, Froelich acknowledged that she had not been paying her assessments for several years. She claimed that she had advanced $15,410 to the building in appliances, goods and services, janitorial supplies, office supplies, etc., when the building funds were running low during her presidency. She claimed that she should have been granted a credit to her ledger. Froelich added that she was now withholding her assessments for the same reason so many other members had stopped paying their assessments in the mid-2000s, because she was still dealing with leaks. Froelich and Johnson had identical third-floor units at opposite ends of the building. Both were directly under the two gabled roofs. These two portions of the roof had not yet been repaired. By withholding her assessments, Froelich likely broke the bylaws. Board members are not eligible to sit on the board if they are more than a month behind in assessments, according to the bylaws and election documents. At a point, 
I accepted that reconciling these conflicting narratives and allegations would be an impossible task. Froelich had assured shareholders that the courts would let the truth come to light. She wrote in an email to shareholders, the court will decide the case on the evidence, not on hearsay and fabrications. But the courts never got a chance to decide any of the cases. All four lawsuits remain open until the sale of the building, and they were dismissed through settlement only after the sale of the building closed. The Herald and the Weekly could not access the settlement documents. William House was able to return to his unit in 2020, just about six years after his ceiling collapsed. He had been withholding his assessments like he did before as a means of holding the board to completing the repair work on his apartment. He said that his non-payment hadn't been a problem before. But within a few days of moving back into the building, the board came knocking to demand the years of back pay. You need to come downstairs and explain to us how you want to pay back this money, House remembered the board telling him. And he agreed, on the condition that he could have a lawyer sit in with him. He didn't trust the board to negotiate fairly. House told me, it's not a debt I'm settling, it's an agreement because you guys strung me along for I don't know how long. I'm not just going to fork over money. Eventually, they agreed on a payment of $12,000 to satisfy the six years of non-payment, probably around a third of what he actually owed. A few weeks later, in August 2020, House opened a letter from the board announcing that they needed to sell the building. The letter said that the board had received an offer from a developer for $11.5 million dollars, and that the investor wanted to close by December in just four months. House told me, at the time, I'm like, well, what did y'all take my money for? You made me think this money was going to help. Then you coming back to me saying, we got to sell the building. The proposal to sell the building came as a surprise to shareholders. Some of them came away feeling as though the board was acting on information that the shareholders were not attuned to. The board insisted that they had been approached by a developer. House, White, and others are certain that the board was soliciting offers months beforehand. House and his wife, a former real estate professional, spent many hours dissecting what had happened with it all. His unit, the rehab, the sale. House said, I seen each one of the board members. After saying they were going to sell the building, they stacked the building with people with the same last name, first name different. My wife said, Huey, what they doing is inside trading. Gray Riley did not respond to requests for comment, but Chris Caston, the board's lawyer, refuted that idea. As I remember, the potential sale of the property wasn't something that was contemplated by the board at the time I was engaged, in January 2019. That was not an issue that we discussed, he said. In a September 2020 board meeting, the board offered shareholders a choice. Option one, they could accept the offer and the payouts that individual members will receive for their shares would be anywhere between $40,000 and $115,000. That's far more than they would have ever been able to sell their units for on the market, given the state of the building. Or option two, they could vote against the sale. If they did that, the board would increase assessments, introduce yet another new property manager, and make changes to the bylaws. Torres said, that he felt there was no real choice for the shareholders to take 
even though he disagreed with selling the building. He felt that the building was selling for far less than it was worth, but the board wouldn't put the building for sale on the market to see if other buyers might offer more than $11.5 million. Instead, they blazed forward with the offer they had. In November, Toure voted in favor of the sale, along with more than the required two-thirds of shareholders present. The building would be sold. But after the sale was voted upon, things once again went south. For reasons the board wouldn't explain, it took until March to close on the sale. The first payment to shareholders, which arrived later that month, was only around 40% of the amount they were promised. That was because of an unexpected $3 million holdback for tax liability determinations. Shareholders felt betrayed that they hadn't been alerted to the possibility of a tax holdback sooner. CBS News sent out reporters to cover the conflict at the end of March. Dixon told CBS, We need the money now because we need to move. The board and the new owners, a company called 312 Properties, gave shareholders only three months to move out of the building. One of the only documents the board shared with shareholders in advance of the sale was a cash flow statement. It showed the bills and payments that the cooperative would make from the $11.5 million. The statement showed tens of thousands in payments to contractors and legal settlements, but included no information on which projects or cases the payments were tied to. There was an extra $50,000 paid to OLN Construction. OLN was a contractor that had allegedly botched its plumbing and electrical work during the rehab. There was a $10,000 severance payment to someone who had been working as a debt collector in the building. Several of the line items introduced more questions than they answered, like $3,000 in refunds for shareholder overpayments. Then, there were two payouts for legal settlements. One was for $22,000, and the other was for $2,500. You'll remember, those were the same amounts Frolic and Medina were claimed to have owed in their unpaid assessments. Dixon told me there was no transparency. There was none, even with the money. The first check they gave us, they told us where the money was going to be in. There was no account number, no bank heading, just the number. The $3 million was going to be at Beverly Bank and Trust. It was as if someone just took a sheet of paper and just copied a heading or something. Dixon and her mother were able to find new housing just a mile away in Bronzeville. But the piecemeal distribution of funds made it stressful to work with real estate agents. She says that she feels lucky to have found a seller who was willing to wait until she had received all of her funds from the Tudor Gables. They weren't alone in struggling to find new housing. Some shareholders had to stay with family. Others had nowhere to go and remained in the building until midsummer. That's when 312 Properties began a full gut rehab of the building around their apartments. The $3 million holdback was distributed to shareholders later that year, lawyer Chris Caston said, in addition to a $2,000 interest. The board and Caston declined to provide the Weekly and the Herald with closing documents or any other information that was provided to shareholders. When shareholders received a letter from the board in November 2022, saying that they were sending out the last payment of $140 to $400 before winding down the corporation, Dixon called me. 
She was almost in tears with anger and frustration at the way the board had treated her and other members through the rehab and sale. You think you're good, and then you get an email, and it stirs up everything. It's a never-ending thing with them. You did us wrong, and you're still coming at us with these bullshit letters, not showing us anything. The new owners, 312 Properties, started the rehab work in 2021. As of press time, the building is still under construction. Through a spokesperson, the 4th Ward office said that 312 Properties were projecting the building to be completed by April of this year. Right before Gray Riley was elected president, Froelich had sent an email to shareholders encouraging them to run for open positions on the board. The email had been forwarded to me by a former member, and when I first read it, I paused at the sign-off line. It said, Please consider submitting your name for board candidacy to become one of the seven directors of this multi-million dollar corporation. For weeks, I couldn't stop thinking about it. In all my interviews with shareholders and the hundreds of pages of documents and emails that had been shared with me, I had never known anyone talking about the cooperative in this way. Least of all, Froelich. It's not that the statement wasn't true. Of course it was. Such a gorgeous old building in Kenwood, overlooking the boulevard. Courtyard buildings on the boulevard routinely sell for millions of dollars. And while some cooperatives may have different approaches to cooperative living than others, at the core of it is a practice of collective living, not capital accumulation. Was it Froelich's way of trying to pull new members into leadership? a way for her to try to convince members that in spite of all the distrust of the board, there was still something to work with? Or was it investor talk, a suggestion of the sale to come? Froelich didn't respond to requests for comment about the email sign-off or what it meant. Any conclusion I drew from the text of the email will be mere speculation. Speculation had become a familiar discomfort in the process of reporting this story. Documents and receipts were sparse, Former members of the board wouldn't talk on the record. Shareholders shared what documents and memories they had, along with all their theories of what had gone wrong. Nearly everyone expressed certainty that the board was buying up units and finding ways to scrape away some extra money for themselves and their families and their friends. But there was no hard evidence to show for it. I ran countless searches, filed public record requests, and interviewed experts in cooperative law and accounting. But in the end, without access to the building's internal documents, which the board had allegedly stopped sharing with its own shareholders, there were few questions that either I or they could definitively answer. What does one do in this situation? Some shareholders said they filed complaints with the city. House said he wished he had called the FBI on the board. Some said they still want to file a lawsuit against the board and the Tudor Gables' new owners for the board's breach of fiduciary duties and for the losses they incurred throughout the last several years of the cooperative's existence. In the end, the fact was that the sale of the building represented immense loss to those who lived in the building and even those who may never have heard about the building. Some members said that the three months given was not enough time to relocate all of their belongings. Gladys Means had to leave behind her piano in a rush to secure a new house and move in. 
Other members alleged that the building's security had been compromised. They said they found their apartments and basement storage units broken into and cleared out as they returned to the building to collect their things. Things like obituaries, photos, stock certificates, all the odds and ends that accumulate over a person's life, Johnson told me, that's the kind of history that was bulldozed when these people took over. She wished that these items could have been handled with more care and preserved, especially given the importance in the record of Black history in Chicago. But it wasn't just loss of these belongings. It was loss of the community. Loss of people who had spent a generation or more together, caring for each other and fighting with each other, sometimes both at once. It was the loss of affordable housing, the loss of the collectivity that had allowed the members of the Gables to govern themselves and their living environment in better times and in worse. Like Dixon, Johnson said the urge to understand what happened to the Gables is still present, but it's overwhelming. It's so much, she said. I'm running a business, trying to get my life in a direction. It's beneath my brain power to keep fighting it. After residing in the Tudor Gables for half a century, Toure now lives in Bronzeville. He still has questions about what happened, but he also wants to know what lies ahead for the building that used to house his cooperative. When will the rehab finish? Will members have a right to return under the new ownership? I would move back in, if the rent were decent enough, he said. Why not? I've been there long enough. Why should I leave? I deserve the right to know. My name is Chima Ikoro, and this audio article was produced by Arissa Apentaku. <laughs> <laughs>